This is an ACR 2022 podcast, especially for you mavens, aficionados, and experts in this specific topic, either lupus, RA, PSA, or SPA. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is Aurélie Nage from Glasgow, reporting live from Philly for Run Now. I have seen quite a few exciting um, studies today and there's one that I really wanted to share with you. So it's basically um, num abstract number 402 by Ogdi et al. Um, and they basically looked into opioids prescription in patients with ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis um, and how this, how this was impacting the medical costs and the need for uh, medical care in general. So um, first finding that I thought was quite interesting, so they looked at two 800 plus patients in the forward um, database um, for rheumatic disease, which is in, um, uh, in the US. And um, the first thing that kind of shocked me was that one patient out of five was consuming opioids on a regular basis. Um, I think first of all it's quite interesting because I think the way it relates to other countries um, it can be a bit different um, but obviously patients that were on um, opioid drugs were more likely to have you know more comorbidities they were smoking more they had higher disease activity but also and it, it makes sense they had higher health care consumption else uh, medical costs were higher more uh, visits as well and if you look specifically into the PSA um, a portion of the patients 33% of uh, visits were occurring more often annually in the context of um, you know patient and also obviously the costs were higher for both PSA and ankylosing spondylitis patients so this whole makes sense but for me the question really is does that relate to a population of patients that have more severe disease? Because you know, more comorbidities, higher disease activity, and then obviously more pain, and because of that, more opioids. Or are these patients basically prescribed opioid and therefore have more comorbidities and therefore more complications? So I think I would be quite interested to see these numbers in different countries. Um, and I think this is um, obviously something that warrants further research. Um, this was Aurélie Najm for Rum Now. Uh, tune in on Rum Now for more content and um, see you soon. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting for Room Now from ACR 22. Um, and today I wanted to focus on uh, reproductive health in the world of rheumatology, especially in our current climate in a post-Roe v. Wade world. And uh, there's two abstracts I wanted to discuss. The first um, was uh, 1673. And this actually looked at the preconception exposure uh, in relation to the time of conception in our patients. This was a French study uh, that looked at a national cohort of patients with spondylarthritis and overall 200 some patients were analyzed. The median time to conception was 16 months. And these patients were treated with uh, an assortment of agents, including NSAIDs, steroids, conventional DMARDs, and biologics. And overall, they found that NSAID use and age were the only association with a longer time to conception. Uh, ironically, biologics and conventional DMARDs, uh, as well as disease duration, and smoking were not associated. Um, so I think overall, the study just tells us to be wary of NSAID use, especially in our female patients, young patients who are planning and conceiving, um, and try to minimize use. And I think it also uh, goes back to our old adage that, adage that we hear every time with reproductive health in, in our world, which is healthy mother and healthy baby. Um, so perhaps if we uh, do our best to control disease, disease state, um, periconception uh, time period, um, we can minimize their NSAID use. And the other study I wanted to focus on is a late-breaking abstract. This is L9. Um, 
And this study really looked at the impact access uh, of methotrexate in our patients uh, post row V weight. So um, a few quick history lessons here. We know methotrexate is a first line therapy for rheumatoid arthritis. We also know that in high doses, um, it can be used to treat uh, uh, miscarriage and ectopic pregnancies. And we also know that recently this summer, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, decided to overturn Roe v. Wade, and some states then enacted laws banning or restricting abortion. Um, this study assessed the impact of that decision on our patients with rheumatic diseases and their access to care. Um, they looked at the forward registry um, and specific about uh, 1,700 patients. And out of those patients, almost 400 patients attempted to fill methotrexate after the Supreme Court decision. Um, of those, 23 experienced a barrier to methotrexate access. Uh, most of them was a delay in uh, prescription refill by the pharmacy. Five of them were just told outright that because of the Supreme Court decision uh, and, and methotrexate has issues with pregnancy and concerns about abortion, they were kind of uh, at least delayed. Um, six had similar experiences, but they did not really have a clear explanation and had a uh, muscle, uh, much less sort of uh, acute uh, presentation by the uh, pharmacy. Um, so I think uh, obviously this is, this is uh, a, a really very recent development. We have to keep in mind that we need to advocate for our patients who need therapy. Uh, we need to educate them on what they're taking. And I think something that we can do uh, quickly to help them uh, at least maintain their access to uh, our drugs is perhaps just writing the uh, you know, the purpose of the prescription um, to help the pharmacy at least understand why they're receiving these drugs. So uh, thanks for tuning in uh, to Room Now for coverage of ACR 22. And feel free to follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Good evening, this is Leanne Gensler from UCSF in San Francisco reporting for Room Now for ACR Convergence 2022, day two of the conference. And I'm going to be reporting on spondyloarthritis and the best things I've seen today at the meeting. So my theme for today includes novel therapies and then diagnostic dilemmas and thinking about depression as a comorbidity in our patients. So in the treatment abstracts today, there were three novel mechanisms that were presented in different phases of study that are worth knowing about because these are going to eventually probably come to fruition as therapeutic options for our patients in with psoriatic arthritis. And so that included abstract 1597 presenting, presented by Frank Behrens on a novel mechanism of isokibep which is a fusion protein of an IL-17A inhibitor that uh, is quite small and, and is able to get to places that perhaps bigger molecules are not. And this was a 16-week randomized control, placebo-controlled phase two trial that was uh, positive in psoriatic arthritis. In addition, abstract 1598, which was an abstract presented by Philip Meese on a TIC2 inhibitor, Ducravacitinib, uh, in psoriatic arthritis presented 52-week results from a randomized phase two trial uh, with long, now longer-term efficacy and safety. And then finally, abstract 1599 is a abstract with bimikizumab presented by Joe Marola looking at patients with active psoriatic arthritis who had an inadequate response to TNF inhibition. And this was the 16-week efficacy and safety data from a phase three trial. So all uh, nice data, either phase two or phase three, some initial primary endpoints and some longer term efficacy and safety data, but looking forward seeing novel mechanisms that we will hopefully have to use for our patients with spondyloarthritis and in particular psoriatic arthritis here. Moving on to the next abstract session today, there were a couple of abstracts that are worth mentioning. And that included abstract 1613 that was presented by Will Tillett who looked at diagnostic delay in patients with psoriatic arthritis and actually compared it to patients with rheumatoid arthritis and noted that in this early arthritis audit, patients with psoriatic arthritis had a longer delay to 
diagnosis, including a longer delay to referral to a rheumatologist. And then even when they were seen by a rheumatologist and diagnosed, they actually had a longer delay to treatment with a DMARD, despite being willing to, uh, you know, escalate treatment and using a DAS-28, which is not the greatest measure for psoriatic arthritis, because it really excludes the lower extremity, including the, the specifically the feet. But these patients had a higher DAS, actually, and a higher DAS on follow-up than the patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and yet we're still not getting treated the same way. So really something for us to think about, both in terms of diagnostic delay, but then also are we treating our patients with psoriatic arthritis differently? Uh, another study looked at comorbidities in ankylosing spondylitis. This is uh, abstract 1609 that was presented by Paras Acharya using the SOAS cohort. And so um, Dr. Karmacharya looked at comorbidities in ankylosing spondylitis and how they associated with both disease activity and function over time. And what he noted was after doing a cluster analysis, analysis, there was a particular cluster that really did not do well over time. And that was a cluster of depression patients. And most of these patients, 96% had depression and they had worse disease activity and function over time. So really an important comorbidity for us to understand and assess in our patients with axial spondyl arthritis because it impacts the way that they may do over time. And we really need to think holistically about these patients. And the final abstract I wanted to mention was abstract 1614, which was presented by Dennis Pudabny. And this was using the PROOF study, which was a multi-country prospective observational study of patients with axial spondylarthritis. And he looked at patients with axial spondylarthritis and stratified by radiographic and non-radiographic disease to see if gender was impacted outcomes, and in particular, inactive disease in patients with axial spondylarthritis, and very interestingly found that in patients with radiographic disease or ankylosing spondylitis, there was no difference in the probability of reaching an inactive disease state, whether you were a man or a woman. However, in the non-radiographic group, women did not achieve inactive disease to the same degree. And so I think the question that came out of this and a, a very rich discussion at the end of the abstract is, why? And one of the big concerns is that women with non-radiographic disease may be misclassified as having axial spondylarthritis and perhaps actually do not have the right diagnosis. So we really need to think about this because there already exists genetic data to suggest that men with non-radiographic axial spondylarthritis look like axial, like ankylosing spondylitis, but women with non-radiographic uh, axial spondylarthritis do not have the same genetic risk. And that is a problem in that it brings up the question of whether we have a group of patients that may look like axial spondylarthritis, but actually do not have the disease. Um, and so something for us to think about moving forward as we both diagnose and treat patients with axial and peripheral spondylarthritis. This is Leanne Gensler presenting for Room Now, day two of the conference. Twenty just with room now. This is our second day of doing the faculty re recap, our second year of doing this. And basically, this is a review of what happened at the meeting today. We're getting together at our favorite local pub called Zoom, and um, we're allowed to have drinks if we want to. Um, you can do the same. We want to give you our honest impression of what we thought was good today and get a little discussion going about that. I'd like to introduce to you, this is the Room Now faculty who do a stellar job of covering this meeting, both in tweets, writing articles, videos, podcasts, and then doing these uh, recap panels. Um, so I'll begin. I'm Jack Cush in Dallas, Texas. Robert. Hi, I'm uh, Robert Chalver in Fairfax, Virginia. Janet. Janet Pope, London, Ontario, Canada. Sheila. Hi, I'm Sheila Reyes, joining virtually from the Philippines. Yus. Hi, I'm Yus Yusuf uh, from Leeds, United Kingdom. Anthony. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan from London, United Kingdom. And Cassie. Hi, I'm Cassie Sims from Durham, North Carolina. Akil. Hi, I'm Akil from uh, Palo Alto, California. 
And last, but the most, Bella Meta. Hi, I'm Bella Meta from New York. Excellent. All right, so we're going to begin. And um, these are things that would, would have been presented today. Let's, uh, let's begin with Bella. So hi, everyone. Um, I think this uh, in-person meeting has been exciting after two years. Uh, the abstract uh, that I found was interesting is abstract number 1579, the Tycock study which is tight control of gout. It's an RCT uh, of targeted versus conventional treatment for gout. So the conventional treatment is you let the patients uh, be seen whenever they want and then um, go do the uric, uh, uric acid lowering therapy. Um, they started at one, one th 100 of allopurinol um, and then uh, tape, you know, go up as, as per the uric acid levels. Whereas in the targeted group, they do this every month and at 12 months, they saw results um, and they saw that 90% patients con uh, in the tight control arm reached the target uric acid level versus only 40% in the conventional treatment arm reached the target uric acid level, uh, which is uh, less than six as per the ACR guidelines. Uh, this was non-blinded though, but I think um, what it shows that the way we are managing gout is not adequate. Uh, you know, using new strategies to come up with um, treat-to-target approach even in gout and trying to make sure that everybody implements it is important. Um, so with that, I think um, we need to focus on uh, gout patients a little more. So Bella, they, first off, the group that didn't, was not the tight control group, gets a number that is often quoted. Rheumatologists only achieve tight control, doing what they usually do about 30, 40% of the time, even though you're the experts at gout. So this is very telltale. But in doing tight control and pushing that, nine, that group to 90%, did they have more attacks? Did they induce more gout flares? You know, they, they, they don't talk about flares as, as much in the, in the talk, but um, I think they, they were also given NSAIDs, colchicine, and steroids, right? So for those, I think the, the target was like at the end of one year, where what uh, uric acid levels do you come to? Okay. So they may have, if they'd done a lot of assessment in between, they may not have liked the story so much. And unfortunately, on your way to tight control, there it, it gets a little rocky. Um, I, I guess if they were still monitoring every month, which is not possible in the current system, right? You're not going to see a gout patient every month. Uh, until they receive, so you know, just giving given virtual uh, therapies or some, you know, like a mid-level person going in and just titrating that will also achieve something better. I feel like. What country was this? This is U.S. Okay. Anybody uh, actually do serious tight control and gout in their clinics? I know we all think we do. We try to. Yeah, the truth may hurt if we actually knew. I just try to control the amount of beer. Yeah. I, I, although I don't know if that works either. So um, <laughs> that, that is true. Touche. You know, the, the, um, and especially here at the pub, you know, discussing abstracts, you know, I, I, I honestly, if you want to be truly tight control, um, we need to bring back and you all are way too young. Even Janet, I think is too young for this gout, you know, not, not the gout. I'm sorry a gold nurse. We would used to have gold nurses, which would run our gold clinics and they had protocols and they saw patients. There's a lot of literature about gout run clinics run by nurses, way, way more successful than you would be in your practice, even though you're the gout expert. That's true. I mean, I think it's about paying, paying attention. I mean, they also did like ultrasounds on these patients and saw like objective changes in like ultrasound measures, double contour and whatnot. So Okay. Um, Interesting. Akil, why don't you give us yours? Yeah, it's actually, uh, there are two posters at the uh, Ignite talk, um, which I'll talk briefly about, but both talk about in light of uh, detection of sacroiliitis and imaging. Um, so one of them was abstract to, uh, 1255, which was, uh, do rheumatologists overcall sacroiliitis imaging in AXPA? And essentially they looked at um, the uh, detection of sacroiliitis uh, in central readers, expert readers uh, versus um, uh, um, uh, community um, uh, rheumatologists as well as academic rheumatologists. Essentially, they found that, that um, when comparing um, 
diagnosis of uh, sacroiliitis in central uh, readers versus local readers, there was about 87% agreement in x-rays and then about 75% uh, agreement on MRIs. But when you're comparing the uh, diagnosis of um, sacroiliitis between academic versus community, there was a greater agreement with the um, academic rheumatologist uh, versus the community rheumatologist when compared to the central readers when uh, diagnosis of sacroiliitis. And I thought that was just really interesting because um, there seems to be some discrepancy in the diagnosis of sacroiliitis when you when uh, using the uh, modified New York criteria, when you have central readers versus um, uh, local uh, readers, and then uh, this discrepancy between um, the um, academic versus community. And then um, abstract 383 uh, looked at the performance of an AI algorithm in diagnosis of um, sacroiliitis and uh, looked to see uh, whether there's any agreement with um, uh, uh, if there's agreement with um, uh, um, central readers in the diagnosis of um, sacroiliitis. And they found that their uh, sensitivity was about 82%, specificity 81, um, with an agreement uh, between the central readers and the, um, and the, um, uh, the, the algorithm was about 82%. So which I thought was interesting is that while, the, uh, it, while uh, it is high, it's, not, it's still not quite, it might, uh, it's still not uh, quite there yet in terms of, um, being something that we can use to diagnose uh, sacroiliitis the, uh, using an AI algorithm as a, as a standard in terms of diagnosis of sacroiliitis. I still think there's uh, some work to do, but there's possible potential in the future. So your first report, what's the recommendation? All go to a central reader or an academician and you guys in practice need to go back to school? What's the, <laughs> what's the point of the, of the research? Yeah, that's I, I, yeah, really interesting. I think, um, I mean, there are some discrepancies between um, when you compare it to the academic versus the uh, community. I don't think it's something that, you know, um, that the community um, is that, you know, it's slower, but I think that um, there there are some gaps. And I think, um, you know, there's always room for um, education, um, uh, reiteration, going, going over the modified New York criteria, um, seeing what uh, I think also like looking to see where is that discrepancy, which cases are is there disagreement on, and why is there disagreement too, and maybe that gap can maybe can be then used to kind of improve the agreement and maybe more uniformity in terms of detecting sacroiliitis um, on imaging. Um, I don't think it's something that you know we should delegate it strictly to the central versus the academics. I think there just can be some discrepancies that are open for discussion, and that we should look and see what the discrepancies are and look for uh, and kind of. Uh, further look into that and see what we can fix from there. I, I think eventually this is all going to be replaced. <laughs> the by a, by are AI? I think they're getting better. They've been like, if you start, I mean, I've just been paying attention to some of the radiology meetings and you'd be surprised on what they can achieve. Um, the dermatology meetings are already talking about it. There's some things that can be totally replaceable, but but because sacroiliitis for us is mostly like a screening thing. We are still not 100% relying on that. We'll still look at the clinical picture. So an AI algorithm will do enough, I think, in the next five, 10 years. I don't know. So Anthony, you're a, a spa guy. What do you think of this trend? I think this it will be more for cases where there is probably um, no agreement between the radiologists where you might go to, uh, to a central place for confirmation. I think in routine practice, we will still be using our local uh, radiologists. There might be cases where the machine uh, machine learning can be used uh, for more routine uh, scan screening patients, but we will still need some validation with uh, the human eye. Uh, but certainly we're doing it in trials now where we send away a scans just to get validation and standardization, but not for every patient. You know, um, some of you work in institutions where um, you've got a good musculoskeletal radiologist. You really do. And that's a great thing. I've worked in those places. I've worked in places where I had a radiology department and the request would come in from the arthritis clinic and the radiology report would be arthritis present. And I would be, and I'm paying for this. In this situation, AI would be far preferable, but I really want, you know, an expert. And who's going to be my expert if it's not me? Janet, what would your recommendation be? Do you, do you want to replace man with machine? 
Uh, yes and no. So again, um, the you don't want it overcalled and you don't want it undercalled. So I think if you have a high index of suspicion, even if you have a negative um, MRI, you're going to start looking elsewhere. HLA B27 positive and uveitis and a stiff lower back. So I think sometimes yes and sometimes no. But I think we have to realize that. Um, if you teach machine learning AI really well, it'll it will on certain things say yes or no pretty easily. But I still think um, takes us about a minute and a half to look with our eyes as well. So I think we should look. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Cassie, do you have an interesting one from today? I sure do. So um, I focused a lot on Dr. Alexis Ogdi's work. She had two abstracts today that were just so interesting. And, and really the big focus is on mismanagement of um, seronegative spondy diseases. So mostly ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis. The first abstract is 0402. And this had over a thousand patients with the majority being psoriatic arthritis um, and the minority being ankylosing spondylitis. And more than 20% of the patients reported using opioids. And Opioid users had more comorbidities. They were seeing the doctor more frequently. They had worse disease activity and a higher prevalence of smoking. So everybody on this call knows that we don't treat our diseases with opioids. They don't fix the problem, they mask it. And if we're masking pain, potentially we're not able to treat to target um, using the biologics and the other medications that we have. And I feel like this, this field is uh, really moving forward. We have so many new biologics that were discussed at this meeting and we have so many options for these patients. And, and so we need to make sure that we are reassessing their pain and not relying on pain control as the main outcome come for these patients. We need to make sure their disease is actually um, controlled. And on that note, there was another abstract that she um, reported here. It's a 0078. And this is looking at primary care doctors versus rheumatologists managing um, seronegative spondyloarthritis. Rheumatologists were more likely to use biologics, whereas primary care doctors were more likely to prescribe um, pain medication, both opioid and non-opioid. Um, and so again, I think everybody here knows that if somebody has one of these diseases, a rheumatologist needs to be involved in the, in the care. And we probably need to be seeing them more frequently after their first diagnosis in order to get rapid control and prevent reliance on uh, pain medications in the future. This is a big problem. You know, it's sort of out of your hands. Uh, and although rheumatologists use opioids in these patients too, um, did she offer um, or the discussion offer any other reasons for appropriate narcotic use in this population? So, you know, I think when there's sequelae of disease, so when the disease is no longer reversible and our biologics and our DMARDs are not going to change uh, the outcome, that then maybe you know, non-opioid pain control is certainly an option. It is always an option throughout the course of disease. And then also using supportive care, things like physical therapy um, and uh, things like yoga and stretching, trying to educate patients on ways to avoid a reliance on, on opioid and non-opioid pain control. But it's a multi-disciplinary you know, approach. So you have a physical therapist, occupational therapy, maybe even a mental health provider to help uh, to cope with chronic pain. So there isn't a one-all solution, but I think as providers, we need to be aware that this is a problem that we may not be able to control completely, but we can play a role in hopefully minimizing some of this reliance on opioids. Robert, you've seen this, these reports in the last few years. What, what, what do you take away from all these together that yeah, would be I, helpful I, to people? Thanks for that. I really wanted to comment on that one, the, uh, the opioid study. I saw the exact same one. Actually, I think to me, what the most pressing thing from that study was actually the opioid users ended up having to pay more for medical costs and drugs. So I think that actually tells us a lot. You know, are these people who are using op opioids, do they even have the same insurance coverage? If any insurance coverage, why are they paying more for, for, uh, the, for drugs? If I'm a, a patient there and I'm paying hundreds or thousands of dollars for something that another patient pays five bucks a copay for, I can see how I could, you know, not use that drug or not want to spend my, 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 uh, you know, monthly income on that drug and take the easy fix. So I think, yes, we all know opioids don't work. We know there's sometimes a stigma with these patients and we, we should not propagate this, but I think that discussion obviously with, with why the healthcare costs and the drug costs are so much more, that's like another hour day discussion into the healthcare overall. But that what I thought was very, very interesting. 
All right, let's move on. Anthony, do you have an interesting one? Yes, I, I really enjoyed the uh, plenary session today, uh, in particular the study on uh, remibrutinib, which is a, a bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitor in Sjogren's disease. Uh, for a long time, we've been looking for a specific uh, disease-modifying therapy in Sjogren's. And so this is uh, looks quite promising. It's a phase two uh, placebo control trial where they had 100 patients in the active arm and about 24 in the placebo arm. Uh, at the end of 24 weeks, there was improvement in the um, the Sjogren's scores, the SDI score, and also the salary flow and also a drop in the immunoglobulins. Uh, and overall, it looked like it was quite well tolerated with no major sort of, uh, significant side effects. I think more, obviously, more studies will need to be done in a larger cohort to prove this, but it looks, uh, does look promising. So I'm going to be, it's me against the rest of you, okay? Because usually when I bring this up, I get in a lot of trouble. Sjogren's syndrome is you know, 70, 80% fibromyalgia and dry mouth, okay? And the Sjogren's syndrome is riddled with all failed trials. DMARDs fail, biologics fail. You know, things tend to look good in phase two. This is a phase two trial. We saw a phase mm -hmm. two trial last year that looked good. And then they crash and burn in phase three. So was there something about this trial that gives you more hope that, and, and I, I really have a hard time understanding how a BTK inhibitor is going to actually help Sjogren's syndrome, but... Nonetheless, you know, I mean, there is a biologic plausibility here. If you believe there's ongoing inflammation, it drives manifestations. But was there something about either the way the design of the trial or the outcome measures that would give you more hope that it actually might work better in phase three? I think the, uh, they had quite good uh, stringent outcome measures here, uh, both um, uh, in terms of objective uh, measurements, immunoglobulins, uh, also using the salivary flow and the STI score. I think the numbers for phase two study was um, uh, fairly good. Um, and also, I think there might be some biological plausibility with um, B cell activation uh, through BTK. Uh, like I say, I think the test would be when we get to phase three and bigger numbers. Any other gut reactions to the, pl the plenary session? Yeah, so um, in, the, in terms of uh, the, the Sjogren study, um, so one one other unique selling selling point as well was in terms of the patients' diversity. So there were only about sixty five percent were white, uh, and and the others like you know um, they got Hispanic and, and and so forth. So I think that's quite um, you know one of the unique selling point. But um, the negative side of it is the patient reported outcomes, all of them. <laughs> so the Esprit, the fatigue, uh, the pain, I mean, none of them actually improve in both arms. So I think that may be quite, you know, quite tricky of that. So I think if they want to potentially use like a composite, you know, measure when they do a phase three, I think it may be a bit difficult if you want to compare the clinical and the patient reporting together. So I think, I think, yeah, I think it's, it's up in the air. I think I agree with you, Jack. So. Janet, you had a comment? Yes, I was just going to say that I think if you want to find change, you want people with lots of serology, rho and law or SSA, SSB, um, you want probably a high ESR, but I think what would be most informative is early disease, because once your glands are scarred, they're not coming back. So you need lymphocytic infiltration in the glands, probably lower disease duration. And of course, we all do know that it's... Uh, Although fibro is a common comorbidity uh, to be dry, eyes, mouth, um, achy, et cetera, inflammatory arthritis, vasculitis. It's not a fun disease to have by any means. So we need help. Yeah. I certainly would love to see something because I made the horrible mistake once as a fellow of picking up our visiting professor who was famous for Sjogren's syndrome, Dr. Norman Talal. And, you know, and I was a fairly good fellow, I thought, and I'm driving him to his hotel and he says, so what do you do? What are you interested in? And what's the most common autoimmune disorder worldwide? I didn't know I was going to get quizzed on, on my taxiing duties. And of course, I made the mistake of not saying Sjogren's syndrome, which is what he's worldwide famous for. If you can include, you know, primary and secondary it was, I'm still scarred over the whole thing. So anyway, use you're up. 
Yeah, so uh, I'm going to talk about uh, COVID uh, still. Um, so I'm just going to talk about uh, if you shall. Um, so the early uh, experience uh, from um, Dr. Cassandra Calabres and team. Uh, so the abstract number is 0799. So as we all know, uh, rituximab uh, has been getting a lot of bad press in terms of clinical outcomes during the pandemic because of its effects on humoral immunity. Um, therefore, we need some uh, more uh, extra mitigation strategy you know, for these uh, vulnerable you know, patients. Um, so Evishell has been uh, licensed in, uh, in America since uh, late 2021. So they've started using this in Cleveland from, from January uh, and the period of observation was for four months, January to May. Um, so they studied uh, in um, people uh, with uh, immune-mediated inflammatory disease on B-cell depletion therapy. Um, just over, uh, over half of them uh, had a diagnosis of rheumatic disease and others like you know, neurology and so forth. Um, so they found that, um, so they gave uh, Evishel in 417 uh, patients. Um, so um, that four-month period observation, there were only 3% uh, risk of uh, the uh, development of breakthrough infection, uh, which, is, which were only 13 patients of it. Uh, and of these 13 patients, there was only one that required hospitalization. So um, this early experience is, um, it is quite um, encouraging and promising for Evishel. However, there's quite a few limitations. It's because of, uh, you know, variants change. Um, and then, you know, how long did the uh, evolution last? I think we probably need like six monthly. So I think we need more data. But then again, if we need more data, then the variants change again. So I think it's just never ending. But, uh, you know, the bottom of line is, although we're talking about that, you know, vaccination is still, you know, key, you know, for, for our patients, really. So use question, um, the background therapy in these 400 patients, these are not rituximab patients, were they? So they were all uh, B-cell depleting therapy. So they've not specified, you know, some of them rituximab, some of them could have got other, you know, obinutuzumab or so forth, so forth, yeah. Did, I've run into some rheumatologists in my travels who are using Evashel in our autoimmune patients who are taking immunosuppressors. And I'm not talking about rituximab. I'm talking about on being on mycophenolate or azathioprine or even an IL-6 inhibitor. And I look at them and I say, well, that's just a little crazy, if you ask me. Does anybody think that we should be using Evasheld in our patients who are on biologics or immunosuppressives? Oh, only rituximab due to the worst data, although MMF had data that was at risk. I think rituximab, especially repeat users for 12 years kind of people, their B cells are down. A lot of times they're older. So I, we're using it for rituximab only in our patients, no one else. Yeah, I think it makes sense there. It's a no brainer. And I think it makes sense in people who are really sick and immunosuppressed. Our patients who are at greatest risk are autoimmune patients who have very active disease, maybe on high dose series, maybe on multiple immunosuppressives, that might be a good move, you know, honestly, if, but you have to make the judgment call about how immunosuppressed they are. Um, so this clearly is a gigantic advantage. And there is a, a large population who are not being treated as use um, describes that what they did at Cleveland Clinic. And it should be done because it as they showed that worked. Um, anybody have any trouble getting have a shell for their patients? Yeah, we are in the UK. <laughs> oh. um, yeah, so it just it's just not getting there. The you know the every shell been approved by EMA since March this year, but we couldn't get it uh, because um, the government said um, there's not enough data. So the trial, the initial trial that shows seventy one percent reduction in breakthrough infection was conducted in the Delta you know, uh, phase, not the Omicron phase. Uh, yeah, and because of that, so I think a lot of people like been railing about it. A lot of like you know patient groups and everything been railing, and we're still not getting any joy of it. Right. Okay, that's interesting. Sheila, what's going on in uh, where today at your, your view of the meeting? Okay, so um, I've decided to talk about um, cardiovascular complications in lupus, and um, I've chosen uh, abstract 1596, where they looked into the role of coronary calcium screening in lupus patients who appear to have a low um, cardiovascular risk. So uh, usually the um, risk calculators like the ASVD um, 
that we can that you can that we can use to assess if a patient um, has an indication for statin risk. So they usually do not incorporate um, non-traditional risk factors that may underestimate the um, risk for SLE. And we know that um, in lupus patients are at high risk for gas, cardiovascular disease. So um, what they did here was, th this was actually a post hoc analysis um, of a prior cohort study. So um, there were female patients who um, were recruited and um, age match controls were recruited. And so um, they looked in, oh, sorry, I forgot to mention. So. Um, they considered that apart from, aside from using the ASVD risk calculator, um, the cardiac uh, CT could be, um, quantification of coronary um, artery calcifications might um, play an additional role in, or an adjunctive role in um, aiding stra stratification for um, cardiovascular disease. And so they looked into um, these patients where, uh, so they, those with um, ASVD, they calculated the ASVD risk. And then what the results show is that um, among the SLE patients who had low ASVD risk, um, according to the calculator, um, 34 or that's uh, 34 out of 122, or that's 28% of the subjects had abnormal um, coronary artery calcium scores compared to the healthy um, age match population. And um, only 4 or 12% of the low ASCVD risk who had abnormal um, CAC scores were on statins. So basically what the study here is saying is that, okay, you do not, we do not need to do um, CT, um, CT scans on all patients with, um, with lupus um, or those with um, low ASCVD risk, but the results show that um, SLE patients were significantly more likely to have abnormal CACs compared with controls, particularly um, those patients who had advanced age, had longer disease activity, um, had higher total cholesterol and um, higher LDL results um, compared to those with normal CAC. So, um, so initially I was thinking, so do we need to do CT on all these patients? But no, it's, it's more actually of guiding us as to whether, for example, we need to consider rescreening or probably regular screening of our lupus patients, particularly those who are um, um, higher age or those with longer disease activity. Maybe we need to reassess their cardiovascular risk especially if you know they're not really on statins and maybe the indications will be there if we do um, we do be screening on these um, subset of patients. So Sheila, what was the age of this group of lupus patients? Um, okay, so uh, there were the the average was um, about um, 39 uh, 39 years of age. That's, that seems like a reasonable age for a lot of lupus cohorts. It's not the lupus patient population I treat at the county hospital. We're all young minorities. And, you know, I, I, so I can't imagine it's being very appropriate in those people. But the real, this boils down to the issue of what's the real predictive value of coronary calcium scores uh, in moving forward. Do any of you advocate for this in any of your patients right now? In, in that age group, no. I mean, you've got the uh, risk factors that you're going to look at and should treat. I mean, the cardiologists like it in older people where you're wondering, is there uh, coronary artery disease or not? But I, I wouldn't routinely do it in a 39-year-old lupus patient. Even if they were 10 years on steroids, I'd look at the metabolic syndrome stuff first. 
Exactly. That's what I was going to say is that just like we look for fatty liver disease, maybe in psoriatic arthritis patients, we always need to have an open mind about these patients having almost advanced metabolic issues beyond their age. So checking a lipid profile, checking an A1C, talking about weight and diet and hypertension, I think that needs to become a part of our healthcare maintenance, just like cancer screenings and vaccinations and smoking and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think this study is a great example that we need to have this on our radar and stratify these patients, knowing that the traditional scoring systems don't take our diseases into consideration. Yeah. Um, I, again, I have some concerns about it because I've heard, um, you know, stories where the number was zero and, and they're dead, you know, a, a month later and the numbers where it was, you know, a few thousand and they've lived 10 years. So, uh, and it's sort of like the academic rheumatologists say that they don't, that they won't do it. The community rheumatologists are fishing for new calf candidates, uh, and so they they use this as a justification. But I think the maybe the great thing here is that it was subject, subjected to study here, and this can maybe help inform how you're going to approach uh, your lupus population. Let's move on with Janet Pope. Great. So uh, Kevin Dean had a busy day today. So he was doing uh, the STOP RA trial as well as the um, RA debate. So I want to talk about two trials very briefly. So 1604 was uh, 20-site uh, RCT of CCP3 positive people with a fairly high positivity followed for three years or more, a median of three years, um, randomized to hydroxychloroquine or placebo to try to stop RA, which is the name of the study. And wouldn't it be great if we found that hydroxychloroquine worked. Um, the rate of getting RA in these patients, some were people, some had symptoms, some didn't, but they couldn't have overt synovitis. So you couldn't be uh, already having inflammatory arthritis. So over the few years of follow-up, about one in three uh, developed RA, which I think is actually a little bit high, but it's on target with some other studies. So it was a good and rich population, but the two graphs were identical. And I just want to compare it that yesterday, uh, a further follow-up of the um, ARIA or ARIA trial, which is um, Avatacept versus placebo in these pre-RA patients, uh, strongly positive. They could have arthralgias, but they couldn't have overt synovitis. And they did um, very interesting trial design on the area that was um, abstract uh, 530. Um, they looked at MRIs, that's what they reported, but the bottom line was uh, these at-risk patients were randomized to Avatacept for six months or placebo, and then followed another 12 months on no treatment, so 18 months. And they're still finding um, less RA in the group, although some of the benefit is being attenuated as you're not on drug for a long time, but less RA still at um, 12 months after stopping your Avatacept, so 18 month trial, then placebo, and the MRI was showing that as well, that uh, less um, subclinical synovitis. So Avatacept, fairly expensive, you don't know in whom you'd use it, in pre-RA and hydroxychloroquine fairly inexpensive and unfortunately was a wash. So I think we'll keep an eye on this space. So let me confuse it a little bit further. Tomorrow they're going to present the TREAT earlier trial, which was presented at ULAR, which is already in press. It's a methotrexate intervention in at-risk individuals that did not meet its endpoint in preventing RA or swollen joints but if you look at individual components like pain and work and MR and stiffness, the two treatment arms, placebo and methotrexate, never met. It looks like they, they, it showed some individual symptom or single parameter benefits. And as we discussed at ULAR, a negative trial is being viewed positively by a bunch of people. So Janet, um, I have mixed results with methotrexate. I've got a negative trial, or maybe that's negative results with methotrexate. I got a negative trial hydroxychloroquine, but abatacept seems to look good. Uh, are rheumatologists any smarter going forward on this? 
Uh, yes and no. I mean, the closer you are to RA, the more likely you'll get RA. So the old, old methotrexate study, I think it was about 15 milligrams, was randomizing people that didn't meet ACR criteria. But in my mind, they actually had RA. They had swollen joints, et cetera. But meeting the uh, 2010 criteria for, for RA, um, methotrexate delay for one year of treatment delayed the onset of an RA classification. And when you stopped it, the people regressed. So we got positive and negative data from methotrexate. But I think that we have to, there's a, it's a whole, it's a grab bag. It's like pre-diabetes. What does that mean, right? It's the same idea pre-RA or RA at risk. Some of these people actually are inflammatory arthritis that we either don't detect or we just don't label yet. So more to come, I think. So I want to really strongly underscore what she just said, which is different than what Kevin Dean says and what I've been saying, your risk of RA ratchets up from an from you know environmental risk to an autoimmune state to then you get, you know, you're a smoker and, and you're double positive. And the more you add on, you ratchet up your way to RA, but it really is what Janet said. The closer you are to RA, the more comfortable you should be in using something. The further away you are, it's still going to be symptom management. I think that's the smart way to really manage the situation. And all, you know, 10 years of research and Kevin Dean has, you know, spent millions of dollars and lost all kinds of sleep over it. And Janet figured it out in two minutes. Brilliant. Robert, you're going to end the show. All right. So every conference, um, I try to scat out some gut microbiome um, abstracts because they interest me very much. Um, and I'll talk about why in a second. So this is uh, actually in the world of JIA. It's abstract 0868, but still pertains to us in, in Spondy. Um, they looked at, it's a small study, but they looked at um, potential alterations in the intestinal flora of uh, neonates. Um, now, they keep in mind, they did not actually study the gut flora itself in terms of like GWAS and such. They used factors, inferred factors that could affect or interfere with the gut microbiome, including uh, the mode of delivery, choice of early diet, things like you know breast milk versus um, TPN versus uh, formula, antibiotic exposure in, in the mother, and maternal smoking. Interestingly enough, the only factor they found that affected um, the development of spondyloarthritis in these um, babies was antibiotic exposure. And it actually increased the uh, incidence of spondy by 6.2 times. And that further increased with the greater number of antibiotic exposures. And none of the other things that, you know, I guess this makes sense because we understand that antibiotics can affect the gut flora. But interestingly enough, also none of the other factors, you know, you would think maybe early diet would affect it, not so much um, mode of delivery and, and again, uh, maternal smoking. Um, and to me, why I like or try to focus on gut microbiome, because I think one, it's a new frontier, a lot of unknown. And two, patients ask us about it. You know, I think the reason why, from my personal opinion, is they feel like they can control it. You know, gut microbiome, instead of listening to us for what we recommend as a medicine or, or what test to order, they can control gut microbiome. But this study shows us maybe they can't. You know, if you're sick and you have to take an antibiotic, you have to take it. You know, you can't not take it if you're sick as a mother, um, but maybe there's changes we can make. Maybe we don't treat every mother with a sneeze and a cough with a Z-Pack. Maybe if they are sick and they do require antibiotics, do we think about probiotics? Um, but I thought this was a very interesting approach on neonatal uh, gut microbiome. The question is, is antibiotic use a measure, what is it a measure of? More doctor visits, better medical care, earlier diagnosis of cataracts, oh, and also JIA, there, or was it a, 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 an altered you know, immune system and maybe an altered microbiome? The question, and so the, this issue of antibiotic prescribing as a prelude to dis, our diseases has been bantied about for over a decade without a lot of resolution. Uh, and I think it still is, you know, I, I wish someone would take it apart, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, by going really deep on this. But right now it's hard to blame the antibiotics um, for disease, thinking that they altered the microbiome. I, I, does anybody have a different view of this? 
Well, I think what you're getting at is it really could be infection or it could be the host already has issues. However, I think good clinical practice is if you don't need antibiotics, no kidding, don't use them. And that that little babe could be at risk. And they even have studies saying um, a vag delivery, because it probably doesn't get antibiotics versus a C-section, you actually change the microbiome of that kid from day one. So maybe there's something you have to go through the vag, like the birth canal, or maybe it's you get your on-call antibiotics as, for a C-section. I don't know. Okay. All right, folks. Great session. Thank you all for um, all the work you do in covering the meeting and uh, tune in tomorrow for day three recap from the ACR Room Now faculty. Good night, everyone. So hello, everyone. My name is Peter Nash. I'm a professor of rheumatology at Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today we're talking about uh, one of the abstracts presented at uh, ACR Philadelphia, ACR Convergence. This is a European study. It was done in Poland and Czechoslovakia and Switzerland. It's called the Go Back Study. And it's looking at AXPAR and terminating or tapering therapy. So it's a phase four study, but it's looking in particular at non-radiographic AXPAR and asking the question that if you withdraw a TNF, in this instance, it's golimumab, can patients how many will flare and can you recapture them if they do? So they took patients who had active non-radiographic axial spar and these patients had disease of less than five years duration. They were under 45 years of age and they gave them open label golimumab monthly for 10 months. That was the first period of the study and they found that the significant number had inactive disease after 10 months. In fact, of the 323 that started, 188 were inactive after 10 months of treatment. So then they asked the question in the second period, those patients who were inactive, if we either continued full treatment monthly, tapered them to every two months, or gave them placebo, what would happen to their disease? And of those that fled, can you recapture them? So that was the primary endpoint, the percentage who didn't flare once you tapered their therapy and compared that to continuing full monthly dosing. So what happened? <clears throat> the monthly dosing, 84% of patients did not flare versus second monthly dosing, 68% of patients didn't flare and if you change them to placebo, 34% of patients didn't flare over the subsequent period of a couple of months follow-up. Now, of the ones who did flare, you could recapture 96% of them over a couple of months. So no real harm done uh, getting back to where you were and recapturing them. So again, this is another, another study that confirms tapering can be successful, but cessation is asking for a flare and uh, it speaks to whether your glass is half full or glass is half empty, you can stretch it to second monthly and 68% of patients will stay in good shape. But if you want to maintain them, 84% if you continue monthly and you don't taper. So they're your choices. Don't stop, taper if you want to by increasing the treatment duration rather than stopping medication altogether. And that's the take home message. Thanks very much. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines, reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2022. An interesting study by the group of Dr. Fabian Proft was presented at the abstract sessions on Saturday entitled The Comparison of the Effect of Treatment with NSAIDs Added to Anti-TNF Therapy versus Anti-TNF Therapy Alone on Progression of Structural Damage in the Spine Over Two Years in patients with ankylosing spondylitis, or the CONSOL trial with abstract number 0546. A previous RCT suggested a potential benefit of NSAIDs in preventing structural progression in AS, where a continuous dose of celecoxib over a two-year period showed an inhibitory effect on structural progression. Conversely, 
recent studies have shown that TNF inhibitors may have some inhibitory effect on radiographic progression as well. The objective of the console trial, which is an open-label multicenter RCT, was to evaluate the impact of treatment with the combination of an NSAID and a TNF inhibitor compared with a TNF inhibitor alone on the progression of structural damage in the spine over two years in patients with radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, or AS. The investigators chose celecoxib as the NSAID and golimumab as the TNF inhibitor. Patients included in the study had radiographic axial spondyloarthritis and high disease activity, a BAS dye of more than four, NSAID failure, and risk factors for radiographic spinal progression, such as a CRP of more than five milligram per liter, and one or more syndesmal fights. The primary endpoint was radiographic spinal progression using the change in MSAS after 108 weeks. Okay, that was long. Results of this study show that the MSAS change after week 108 was 1.1 in the celecoxib plus golimumab group versus 1.7 in the golimumab alone group with a p-value of 0.79. This means that there was no significant difference between combination therapy and golimumab alone in delaying the progression of um, radiographic uh, changes over two years in patients with AS. Okay, so what do these findings tell us? Can we apply it to our clinical practice? For clinicians like me, interventions that can slow the progression of structural damage in AS are expected to provide clinical benefit in terms of delaying functional loss and improving the quality of life of my patients, which is, which is also ultimately the goal of AS management. Now, on a personal note, I am not comfortable giving NSAIDs long-term because of the risk of developing GI, cardiac, and renal side effects. Now, just two things. First, the potential risks may outweigh the potential benefits if we do combination treatment. Second, the cost of treatment. In this side of the world where I practice, out-of-pocket healthcare is still the norm, and additional medications can burden the patient and may not be as cost-effective. Which brings us back to the study. Though combination treatment with celecoxib and golimumab was not shown to be superior over golimumab alone, either regimens can be considered. Stratifying patients at higher risk for radiographic progression may guide decision-making strategies. Less is probably more. Follow me on Twitter at Rumarampa and tune in to Room Now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2022. Thank you.